I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are a Paranormal Chicks. Episode 164. Well, right off the bat, I have a shout out to Cassie, who works at one of me and Carrie's favorite restaurants locally. She recognized me by my voice because... You're I, loud? Well, yes, I'm very loud. <laughs> and uh, I know she didn't recognize me by how I looked because I looked like a ragamuffin. Well, okay, maybe I do all the time, but you know what I mean. I was going to say, and... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Like, no makeup on, nothing in my hair, like, no product, no, you know, anything. So, uh, sorry, Cassie. Great to meet you, but sorry you had to see me like that. Well, I wouldn't know because I was at fucking work while you and Tiffany were lunching up like ladies who fucking lunch. (laughs) I'm not bitter, I'm just saying. Yeah. I actually have a Netflix recommendation. Oh, shit. There is a little like mini series on Netflix called Unorthodox. It's like four episodes. It's about this woman who is an Orthodox Jew who lives in Williamsburg, New York, and she leaves. Like that happens in like the first 10 minutes. And so it just like is her process of leaving, but it also like jumps back and forth between current times and then like kind of what got her there. Yeah. It was so good. I've been seeing it, and it's caught my eye, but I didn't jump, but I'll jump this time. Well, and I learned so much, too, because, like, the cover of it has her getting her head shaved. Mm-hmm. And so, that at first, that wasn't really what I, I was like, I didn't really know what to expect, just because the cover art is so different. But I knew that women who are Orthodox Jews wear wigs, but I thought that they just wore it when they were out and about and that when they were at home, they let their, like their natural hair down. But that's why she was getting it shaved. Like once they get married, like that's part of their religion is once they get married, they wear wigs. I had no freaking idea. Yeah. That's like their religion. Like that's part of their, like how Muslims wear the hijab and all that. Like that's part of their religion and culture. But I thought that again, natural hair was underneath and they could let it down at home. But in this, that's what the shaving of the head is in the cover art. And so I was like, holy shit, I had no idea. No. So it was really cool to learn way more about, you know, Orthodox Jewish religion and or faith and their customs and mm-hmm. all of that too. I'm going to check it out seriously because I had been looking at it, but I was like, eh, I don't know, but... No, that all sounds really interesting. And it was a super quick watch. I mean, if if I watched it, it was a super quick watch. It was like four episodes. True. Well, Carrie told me a little bit about this show, and she said, uh, one guy has a big dick in it. (laughs) And I was like, they do like a full frontal slash, like it's from the side, though. (laughs) I was like, cool. He a a shower, not a grower. (laughs) Well, that's not the only dick comment she's made today, because she had an epiphany this morning. (laughs) Not an epiphany, per se, but just like one of those moments where you're like... A realization. But like, you know... Do y'all know what she thought? There is a guy walking into work, and she said, he has a dick. (laughs) (laughs) And then she said she squeezed her legs and said, I have a vagina. (laughs) She 
she said, people are just walking around with penises and vaginas, like, ready to fuck. <laughs> I just get that realization every so I, I legitimately can remember being in seventh grade creative writing class, and... You know, dudes wear like basketball shorts and they were all like, we were like all like sitting up right. And I was like, God, he got a dick. He's got a dick. <laughs> they all got pieces. <laughs> it's just so crazy. They're all just flapping in the wind. <laughs> I just love everybody's walking around ready to fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. I'm telling you, you don't know what's going to come out of Carrie's mouth. (laughs) I just love you squeezed your leg. It was like... It's still there. (laughs) (laughs) Just checking. Oh, God. (laughs) The shit we tell y'all, man. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, I know some people who, at very least, they appreciate it. Patreoners. No, that's not right. Okay. Patreoners. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Stephanie C from Arkansas, Brandy L from Arizona, Michelle H from Maryland, Amelie S from Norway, Anna B from Tennessee. Another perfect DJ name. Alexandra H. from Virginia. Natasha K. from Canada. Kareen S. from Mississippi. Renee H. from New York. And Natalie N. from Canada. Thank y'all so freaking much for joining Patreon. We hope that, well, all of our shenanigans uh, keep you entertained. And please never leave us. Please. (laughs) If you want an episode shout out, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. And y'all, Will, I think we said this last episode that Will has been helping us out so much on social media, especially on TikTok. He has been killing it with quotes from the episode, like taking segments out and posting it on TikTok. So don't forget to go follow us over there. And if you have any tips for us on how the fuck to actually make TikToks, let us know because Donna and I have ideas and we just don't know how to fucking make videos. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I mean, that's a story of my life. A lot of ideas, no, no execution. execution. <laughs> I know. Well, that's the hardest part. Yes. That's why we're tellers, not doers. Mm-hmm. We can tell you what to do all fucking day. You just got to figure out how to do it because we don't fucking know. Yeah. Like, you got to get the gumption. So, can someone help us find our TikTok gumption? Can someone please give us a... Uh, not gumballs. No, I do love a gumball. I know you do. Can someone please give us old lady version of how to make a TikTok video? Yeah. Close yeah. notes versions, dumb this down for us because we don't fucking understand. Much like we don't understand Twitter, which is why Will helps us on there. Yes. Yes. I can respond. I don't know what to say. You know, like I can respond all day, but like actually making the tweet, mm-hmm. because I can't have a a limit. Oh, we know, Donna. <laughs> I mean, that's my Tis problem. Yes. I'm like, oh, all the, okay, I'm out of spaces. Okay. Maybe no one would ever read that because it's a paragraph. So, yeah. Facebook is more of a jam on that because, you know, you can just go on for days. Like, like right now when you're like mm-hmm. monologuing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, so if y'all know anything about TikTok and you know how to make these videos, you know, like do all the things, hit us up because we need help. Yes. But if you want to know what Will's doing and like the two TikToks we have made ourselves, you can follow us at the APC podcast. All right. I'm doing a recommendation from Tawny M. So, you know, things in advance. All right. Picture it. Stratton, Colorado in the late 1980s. You and your significant other have your dream home and everything has been great. There's definitely some quirks with the house and land, but nothing you can't reason away. Until one day, you see men drive up on your property and they're from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. And there's also this man in an orange jumpsuit. They inform you that this man, who's obviously a prisoner, lived on this land prior to you purchasing it. Well, and what are they doing there today? Oh, he's going to point them to each location that a body was buried on the property. Oh, my God. Well, that's exactly what happened to Chuck and Leslie Clipper. And that's the day that they found out that they own what used to be known as the McCormick Farm. So let me tell you a little bit about the McCormicks. Tom McCormick was the patriarch of the family, and his ranch was one of the largest in the county. We're talking around 2,900 acres. They farmed several crops like wheat and corn. Then they used some of the land for grazing for livestock, and then they had a feedlot right beside it that generated a good income for Tom and his family. Being an owner of so much land, Tom kept himself pretty busy, which was fine by him because he liked working and being alone more than talking to other people. He was basically the grumpy old man, like, stay off my lawn kind of shit. Well, in the early 1980s, the ranch just wasn't cutting it for the McCormicks anymore. So Tom had to sell off some parcels of his land just to keep his family fed. Well, since that took away some of his profit-making land, such as a feedlot, he turned to other not-so-legal ways of making a living, like running a chop shop on the farm. Things were going well again for them, but by the beginning of 1984, the McCormick's name started popping up with investigations that dealt with stolen cars, all that kind of shit. But the police didn't really go forward with anything at that time for reasons unknown. However, in mid-July, a truck that was associated with the missing person was linked back to the McCormicks. Uh-oh. That missing person was a 60-year-old trucker named Herbert Donahoe. His friends reported him missing when he failed to show up at a truck stop in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, on the date that they all had agreed to. However, it wasn't Tom who was in the crosshairs. It was his son, Mike. Well, fast forward to June of 1985, and Mike was indicted on several different felonies like theft, unlawful possession of auto parts, check fraud, and more. But he had no intention of serving any time. Mike went into hiding and was a fugitive for a couple of months, like six, seven, but was eventually captured. However, Mike still really didn't want to serve any time. Duh. So he played the cards he was dealt. He would help them solve their case in return for leniency on his sentence. 
So for his part of the bargain, Mike had to show them where the body was buried, which he agreed to. But Mike had a bomb to drop on the police. He said that he wasn't the killer. His father, Tom, was. What? Yeah. Michael said that Tom ran the ranch like he was the mastermind of this huge criminal empire. No one was safe, not even family. He's quoted as saying, with dad, you don't talk, you don't argue, you don't ask why. If you do, you end up buried. Mike went on to confess that his dad hadn't just killed once or twice, but instead like double digits. He explained that Tom would scout out men at a Denver church's mission and he would hire transient men to work on his farm, but he would murder them before paying them. It's said that most were men who had substance abuse issues, mainly alcohol, so Tom could stall payments but keep them satisfied with booze until they learned what he was doing, and then before they could really complain, he'd kill them. And of course, he targeted that population because no one's going to miss him, you know, quote unquote, no one's going to miss him. Police aren't going to work hard to find them. Because no one's going to report them missing. Unfortunately, this is such a common story. Yes. I feel like the police unknowingly gave serial killers, who, you know, whoever, targets. You know? Oh, absolutely. Gave them the perfect victim pool. Yeah. Yeah. By inaction, they put forth, all, you know, trauma and all of this into action. Well, on January 30th, 1986, Mike kept his word and helped investigators locate the place where Herbert Donahoe was buried. He said that his father, Tom, attacked Donahoe with a sledgehammer, and then he forced Mike to help him put the body in a sleeping bag and bury it in a wheat field. And by that, guaranteeing his silence. Yeah, yeah. And then he also placed a few more stakes around the ranch. There were, I think, like 13. The police ended up recovering three more skeletal remains. And by that, guaranteeing his silence. Yeah. Yeah. The remains were of a man named James Irvine Plants, James Perry Sinclair, and Robert Lee Sowarsh. Two of the bodies were found in the backyard of Mike McCormick's trailer at the ranch, and a third was found along the fence line south of Tom McCormick's home. The bodies showed that there might have been multiple weapons that killed each man, and police took that to mean there was a big possibility that there was more than one killer. For Robert Lee, his autopsy showed that he had been shot five times all over his body by a pistol and then shot once in the head with a shotgun. He also had a heavy-duty fence wire wrapped around his lower right leg. On a podcast called Colored Red, the host goes into detail about how Tom is said to have killed Robert Lee. Unfortunately, his death was very slow and painful. Mm. Mike recalled having dinner with the family, and they heard a thumping sound throughout dinner. And then Tom yelled at his wife, Mike's mom, Sylvia, that it was her fault all of this happened because Tom believed that her and Robert Lee were having an affair. And without 
any proof. He just decided that, one, he didn't want to have to pay Robert Lee, and two, he could be fucking his wife. So Robert Lee was tied up in the cellar, and the thumping was Robert Lee trying to wiggle free and hitting the walls of the cellar. He couldn't scream because he had duct tape on his mouth. So Mike had to go down, get him, and then meet his dad in the barn. And he did this because he was scared for his life if he didn't obey his dad. So he did just that. And then when they were in the barn, Tom tied some fencing around Robert's ankle and lifted him upside down by that leg. The host of that podcast goes into gruesome detail, saying that the wire was so thin that it dug into Robert Lee's ankle and almost amputated his foot because of the pressure and the force of him hanging upside down by it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Mike said that Tom punched Robert Lee repeatedly and basically used him as a punching bag, just swaying back and forth with each blow. And he's hanging there by his foot. And then he shot Robert Lee multiple times. But then that podcast went further into detail that Tom de-skinned Robert <gasps> and had his ball sack sitting on top of the mound of flesh. Ugh. Oh, so, my God. Yeah. Mm. Mike said one of the other victims was a burglar who he called in his trailer He radioed his dad on the CB radio, and his father killed the burglar by choking him in front of Mike. Here's the thing. The funding for the digging started drying up, was allocated elsewhere, so the police left the land alone without looking for the other potential bodies. It's believed that there are at least the bodies of 17 men who were shot, bludgeoned or strangled, and then buried on the ranch. A lot of his workers had mysteriously vanished, dating back to 1971. And I say mysteriously because those people would leave bank accounts opened with money in them, their clothes behind, you know, and no one heard from them. But here's the kicker. The investigators caught on to some discrepancies in Mike's recounting of what happened against Donahoe, and they ended up charging Mike instead of Tom. There was basically no hard proof evidence against Tom, the dad, but they could get him, Mike, on other things that linked up with killing him. And because Mike was ultimately convicted in the Donahoe case, His testimony about how Tom was responsible for the murders on the ranch was not seen to be enough evidence to convict Tom. Well, Tom McCormick died in Aurora on November 15th, 1997, without ever being tried for any murders. Wow. Yeah. Fast forward about 18 years and Patrick Mulligan, the appeals attorney for Mike, got his murder conviction overturned. And he said that the defense attorney was ineffective at trial. So Mike was freed from prison in 2006. What? However, in 2010, Mike, who was then 53 years old, was doing some shady business with real estate. He had a business partner who was a realtor, and her name was Michelle Lee Thompson Larimer, and she was 38. She was also a mother of a four-year-old little boy. 
And the word on the street was that the two were romantically involved as well. But later it was brought to light that Mike was interested in more, but Michelle was not. So Mike ended up kidnapping Michelle and then he shot her and then shot himself. So he died by suicide and so did any hope of knowing what truly happened on the McCormick farm. Were they father-son serial killers? Who knows? But what we do know is there's some spooky stuff going on now, and I'm going to focus on that. Leslie and Chuck Clapper said that they really do believe there are more bodies buried on the farm because when Mike was there placing the stakes, he told Chuck that Chuck had changed so much of the farm that it was making him hard to remember exactly where the bodies were. And, you know, Chuck went on to say, you never know because, okay, if they dug right where he said, but it could have been off by six inches Mm -hmm. and there was a body on the other side, you know? So who knows? The police dug, didn't find anything, moving on. Because, again, their funding drained. Well, Leslie told ABC News in an interview that every once in a while, the plow will dig up something like a shoe or a piece of clothing. Oh, my God. I mean, what do you even do when that happens? Like, do you call police every single time that happens? I don't know. I mean, because it could be just some random thing. It could be a worker's. Right. But then again, it could be some piece of evidence on... This unsolved murder. So it's like, do you call police out to your farm or to your land literally every single time you unearth something? Like, what do you even do when when you live on that land? Yeah. I mean, like, if I just found, like, a hat on my land, I'd be like, oh, well, somebody threw it out of their car when they were riding by. Oh, it flew off or whatever. But, like, on this land, it could be the key to a fucking homicide. Right. Oh, I don't know. Well... The Clappers did live in the same house that the McCormicks lived in. They lived there for 13 years, but it burned down due to a lightning strike. While they lived in that house, they did have some activity. But like I said, before they knew the history, they could reason that away. I mean, as you do. Right. Their dog would just sit and stare and bark at the basement stairs, but would never go down those stairs. Their daughter had an experience where she was in the kitchen, went to the bathroom, and came back, and all the kitchen cabinets were opened. I mean, was I in the kitchen? I'm (laughs) notorious for leaving cabinets open. Yes, you are. More so drawers. Like, I just don't ever close a drawer all the way. All the way. Like, oh my gosh. When I build a house, it's going to have those drawers that just, like, close themselves. Yeah. So, like, literally never. I'll never have those drawers. (laughs) I was going to say, I wanted those too, but then it was such an extra cost. And I was like, "Mm, you know what? Never mind. I'll use that elsewhere. But then when I accidentally slammed the cabinet too hard, I'm like, motherfucker, I should have got that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It scares me. At the new shop that was built by the Clappers, their sons have had experiences. The shops where they work on their farming equipment and such, and it was built close to where the old house used to be. One of the sons, they were out there working, and he could hear and feel someone walking behind him. Every step he took, there was someone else walking behind him, taking the same steps, following him. Mm -mm. Don't like that. 
Leslie said that the new shop gives her a lot of anxiety and she feels like she can't take a deep breath when she's in there sometimes. The boys were both working one night and they looked out the window of the new shop and they saw an older man's face in the window peering in and he wasn't, you know, translucent or anything. They literally thought it was a person and that happened again one more time. They said he looked super angry, which is definitely on par for Tom McCormick. In the old shop that was built in the late 60s by the McCormicks themselves, everyone seems to feel nauseous and unsettled. There's a hook hanging from the ceiling. It's allegedly the hook that they use to tie up their victims there. And you can see bullet holes in the roof. Hmm. And this is the place that they used as the chop shop. So lots of trauma and crime have happened there. So no wonder for the uneasiness. Miguel, one of the Clappers ranch hands, said that one time he was in the bunkhouse. He was waiting for Chuck to give him the orders for the day. And he felt something tap him on his right side. He looked and nothing was there. But then Chuck walked in. And so Miguel was questioning him like, uh, have you been inside? Like, did you touch me? And Chuck replied, no, because he had just came in the front door. So Miguel was like, okay, give me the list because I'm getting out of this creepy ass place. And then Miguel had another experience in the new shop. He turned on the bathroom light and the office light turned on as well. So he thought, oh, okay, they must be connected, some wiring issue. But when he turned off the bathroom light, the office light stayed on. Hmm. I don't think it's supposed to do that. Mm-mm. He didn't know anything about the murders. And like two weeks after all of his experiences, Chuck told him about the history of the place. So Miguel talked to one of his coworkers about what was going on. And he's like, yeah, weird shit happens here from time to time. But, you know, like you just kind of get used to it. But not all employees were so nonchalant about the hauntings. As his co-worker, one worker quit after spending the night in the bunkhouse, and he woke up to see red eyes outside of the window. And there have been others who claim the same thing. Red eyes? Mm-hmm. Like, pure darkness, but just could see the red eyes. Yeah. Leslie also had an experience right outside of the bunkhouse one night. She had turned to go back inside the bunkhouse, and when she did, she felt like something rushed up behind her. She said that she had never been that afraid in her whole life. And something to note, whatever it was, came rushing up behind her from the direction of where they found two of the bodies buried. There was a time that Leslie was making a video of the area right in front of the old shop, and she heard a whisper that sounded like a man that said, hey, you, or hello. But the video was also really weird. She was standing still, but it was like if a helicopter was nearby with like a buzzing sound and making the frame shake, if that makes any sense. Another place that has activity is the old tire shed. And Leslie gets short of breath and her heart starts to race anytime she's near it. The farm was featured on an episode of Portals to Hell, and when Katrina went inside just to look around the tire shed during the initial walkthrough, she felt something touch her on her back, and she walked the same route, everything, and she could not debunk it. Also, during their initial walk around, 
Jack had some interesting responses on the mail meter where there was no electricity that would interfere with it, and it just kept going off. Jack Osborne, for those who don't watch the show. Yes. Which I have loved Jack Osborne since that episode of their show on MTV when he got so fucking excited because the McQuib is back. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> yes. Like, literally every time it's, it's back, I say that mm-hmm. like him. Yes. <laughs> oh gosh, he has gotten so much better with age though, like looks wise. Like a fine fucking wine. Uh-huh, I'm like, oh, hey Jack. And you know that he loves ghosts and stuff? Like, Okay. But, you know, he's married, has, like, two kids, whatevs. Mm-hmm. Where are the single ghost hunters? That's what I need to know. Okay, back to the portals of hell. Katrina acted like she was a member of the staff at the ranch, just trying to trigger a response because a lot of the attacks, the workers were just doing their job or just simply there, not really, like, looking for anything. So she acted like she was Leslie and was at the bunkhouse writing checks, doing the paychecks. While she did this, she felt like there was someone constantly hovering behind her. And she also heard some movement that couldn't be explained in the bunkhouse. Jack was in the tech van just watching surveillance, and he noticed that one of the cameras had stopped working. So when he went to fix that, he noticed that the door to the new workshop was opened And it hadn't been before. So he went inside to investigate, of course. He heard footsteps that seemed to be rushing towards him. And then also like shuffling in the back of the space. So like slower paced footsteps. The one in the back, me. The one that was rushing him, you. (laughs) And the one that was rushing him seemed to be more aggressive. Also true. You're not wrong. (laughs) They brought in a psychic named Sean Crusha. He did say that he picked up on some energy in the bunkhouse of two men who would argue and fight a lot. He said that there does seem to be a lineage link between those two men, but he didn't know the true roles. He also felt stomach pain when he was in the old shop, which a lot of them feel nauseous and things like that. And he also commented that he believes not all the remains have been found. And that's what I have for the McCormick farm, because there's not a lot to go on for the crimes, which it's like, were they a prolific serial killer duo or no? Who knows? And will we ever know? No, Mm-mm. because it died with both of them. Yeah. And I mean, with 2,900 acres, it's so vast out there. Like you're secluded. It's kind of like that one that you did where the guy would bring the women back and it was at his work. And so he knew no one could hear them scream. No yep. one could do anything. So they were stuck there, and these people had no one looking for him. Because even if people knew that they weren't, okay, so they were at the mission. Even if people knew, like, okay, well, they're not at the mission. Well, they know that they had gotten a job, so they wouldn't be looking for them. Right. 
even if they didn't have a history of homelessness or substance abuse or, or any of those kind of confounding factors that is what made them the chosen victims. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, they have a job. Cool. And everyone has so much other shit that's, you know, there's new people coming in all the time. You can't think about, oh, Jim, I haven't heard from him in a little bit. But also they're like, okay, well, he's getting room and board at this mm-hmm. new job. So must be working out. Yeah. You know, they're not like, oh, I hadn't heard from him in a while. Hmm, he must be dead. You right. know, that would be me. Yeah, that would be you. Yes. When Carrie almost died, you know, like two years ago with the salmonella in her fucking joint, mm-hmm. she had taken some medicine. And again, Carrie is very, like, Benadryl knocks her out. Okay. So this was heavier medicine because, you know, she's in pain, all the things, and she wasn't answering her phone. Well, so her sister, Casey, had called too. And so she texted me and was like, hey, Carrie's not answering her calls. And I was like, she didn't for me either. I was like, okay, at lunch, I'm going down there. Well, a little backstory. My uncle died by suicide and he died in a recliner. Like that was his chair. Well, right when I go in, Carrie's in her recliner and all I see is the back of her head. No TV was on. Usually a TV's on because she's like, got up, watched something, and fell asleep, you know? Nothing was on. Everything was dark. She wasn't snoring, like, nothing. And I was like, Carrie? Carrie? Like, I just did not want to go, like, circle around and see that she had passed, you know? And so I was trying to, like, rouse her so my, like, heart would stop fucking thumping in my ears. And she was out, like, out, and I mean, I cried because I thought she like, it just was like too much. Everything, she was in a recliner. She hadn't answered. But I immediately went to something happened with the medication. And what if she took too much accidentally? I called Casey and was like, she was out because of the medication. It's okay. She's alive. But whew, like instantly I went to, she's dead. not, oh, she's not working. She's really sick, you know, could have slept, you know, whatever. No, no, she's dead. But then for her to be in the recliner, not have messaged anyone this morning, because normally she'll message you anything like, good morning, hey, answer a question, whatever. So she woke up but that's how bad she was in pain and stuff. She wasn't like, oh, let me check my messages. And if she doesn't answer her family's group message, you know she was in pain. <laughs> so, like, again, when I saw her in her recliner, it freaked me out because it's like, oh, she was up. Or did since she never, like, responded this whole morning, what if she died last night and she never made it to bed? You know, like... Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It was ridiculous how worked up I was over that. Uh, and, meanwhile. And she was like, I'm sorry I didn't answer. And I was like, it's not your fault. <laughs> like, but I was like, oh, my God, I thought you were dead. I thought you were dead. Yeah. Meanwhile, I had uh, left my phone back in the room. And my stubborn ass thought that two days after surgery and one day after pick line insertion that I could do it by myself at home alone. Mm-hmm. And... um. 
I couldn't, so I couldn't get back up and go get my phone from my room. And so that's why I hadn't responded. Yeah. And I hadn't had anything to eat or drink all day. Uh, and so I just made myself go back to sleep so that I wouldn't <laughs> need anything. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> because I couldn't get back up. Yes. And so thank God, you know, I would have went and checked on her anyway, but I wouldn't have been so, you know. Um, Emotional. Yeah. Doomsday over here. Like, Marley did not even come with me. And Marley goes places with me, like, especially for lunch because she gets treats. Mm-mm. Not today, Marley. Like, oh. We got to go check on our girl. Yes. So, yeah, I remember that. I did get some drink for you and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And then uh, very swiftly, that night I went to my mama's. Yeah. And stayed with her for a week. Yeah. I don't even remember how we got on that. I don't either. Well, <laughs> there's a good story. <laughs> I don't either. Oh, God. <laughs> How did we get on that? Oh, because we said they wouldn't automatically assume that the person was dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were like, but that's me. And I was like, well, here's a story for it. Because I have a story for fucking everything. I'm that person. I know. I hate myself for it, too. Well, you're Leo. You can't help it. (laughs) Oh, well, hopefully your story isn't as sad as the ones you've been doing. Um... I mean, it sucks. Well, it's crime, so it does suck. Yeah. It's it's not the saddest I've ever done, but it sucks pretty bad. Well, and hopefully yours has an ending. Oh, uh, that's TBD. Oh, gosh. Okay, y'all know how I love that show, Evil Lives Here. Yes, yes. Because I just love the perspective of the family members, and like you just get to know stuff that you just would have never known before. Right. Well, there's an episode. It's season two episode eight and it's called our house of horrors and i don't know why this episode just has stuck with me i've seen it a few times it's a terrible story but in the grand scheme of the evil lives here it's kind of like that's the one that stuck with you right but it did so that's the story i want to do today and it is about william choice so this story is going to go exactly how you think it is From the outside, looking in, the Choice family looked like the typical family. William was married to Alice, and they had a daughter named Crystal. They just lived a typical middle-class life. Alice talks a lot in this episode, and I've read a couple of different articles that are from her voice, and then she was on some other shows one that's on reels that is very much like the Evil Lives Here, but it's the reels channel version of it. But she was on that version as well, and so I watched that too. But basically, Alice talks a lot about how William caught her eye because William grew up in a family that his parents owned their own home and William and his siblings went to private school. And so she was like, okay, like they got their shit together. Like, you know, she was like, they were one of the only people in the neighborhood that owned their home. Everybody else was renters. And so she just was like, okay, this is, this is the kind of life that I want to live. Alice and William obviously end up getting married, but there were some things that she was like, well, that's weird. Like one mother's day, They went over to his mom's house, 
And when he went to hug his mom, she was like, boy, get off of me. Don't touch me. What? And so she was like, she being Alice, was like, that's really weird. Like, what happened? And William wouldn't tell her anything. So she just didn't know, like, what happened. Was it something that he said to her? Was there more history in their relationship? Like, that was just a really weird interaction. And then the other thing kind of bizarre about William was that he always wanted Alice to have her nails painted red and red lipstick on. Like, you get up, you get out of bed, like, before you even brush your hair, put your red lipstick on. No, that's that's a telltale sign right there. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. Look, if you've ever been to one of our lives, you've heard me say, like, I use the Color Street nails because my sister sells them. So I'll hand Colby two and I'll say, hey, pick which one you like. So obviously I like them all because I've bought them all. So I'll say, here, pick which one you like best. Right. And that's the one I'll put on that go round. Mm -hmm. But he's not like wear red nail polish all the time. Nothing else. Yeah. And the lipstick combo of that being red, I'm like, "Mm -mm." right there, red flag. Right. And then she even has to put it on before she's gotten dressed for the day. Yeah. So like put it on. Go make your breakfast, do your thing, get dressed, and then put it back on again. You know? Yeah. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. That really is. And I'm not, like, victim blaming her or anything like that. But, like, oh, no. that is. Mm. Well, and she talked about, too, how, you know, yes, there are all these signs. But she's like, well, not that she, I, I mean, I don't want to put words in her mouth. But I don't think she felt trapped. But she felt like, well, this is just what I have to have to marry him now, you know, like it's just kind of the next step, the kind of, this is my life. What did you say what year this was in? This was in like the early eighties. I was going to say probably around that time. And that is it. Like y'all been dating for a while. And they had crystal before they got married. Mm. So I think they had crystal two years before they got married. Yeah. So she was like, this is just, what has to be done. Right. Because even if you're not in the South, like they're in California, that's still the norm, quote unquote. You know what I mean? I feel like that's a natural progression all the time. Like you've dated a while. Get married. Get married. And so like, it's not just the South though. Yeah. It's like, you feel like that's your expected next step. Yes. And it doesn't have to be. Or you're scared of, oh my God, I've been dating this guy for, and I don't know how long they were, but like seven years. If I end it now, like I have to start dating again at a completely different age. Like, It's interesting kind of that you say that too, though, because one, um, of course, a TikTok, it was talking about like psychology ideas and how the way that we reason things out is by the amount of time that we've dedicated to it. So let's say that you've been in a relationship for seven years. You're like, well, I've already put seven years in this relationship. I'm not going to end it now. Yeah. And it's like, that doesn't matter. Like if it's bad, yeah. it doesn't matter how long you've put into it. It's okay to end it, whether it's been one month or seven years. Right. Or let's say a job. Well, I've been in this job five years, so I don't want to leave. Well, if you aren't happy in your job and you're not fulfilled and you've reached a ceiling and you can't go any further and all these things and a better opportunity comes along, it's like you don't owe that job anything because you've put in five years. Right. And so we reason 
us staying in something because of the amount of time or effort that we put in to get there. Okay, that is so true. And that's so how my mind works. And you're going to laugh at me like, Donna, but at the casinos, if I'm playing a slot machine, I want to stay there. It's like, I've already put $60 in this machine. And if it hits a bonus, like, I want to reap the rewards. Right. You've warmed it up. Yeah. That's exactly what I say. It's like, I've warmed it up. Oh, my gosh. Like, I primed it. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to hit. It doesn't hit. You know what yes. I mean? It doesn't hit. Well, but, just like the relationship, it doesn't work or the job doesn't work because it doesn't matter how much time and effort you put into it in the beginning. Yeah. If it's bad, it's bad. Mm-hmm. And again, just because you have longevity with something doesn't make it worth staying. That's not the yeah. sole reason. I guess I should preface yeah. it with that. Lo- there's a time and a place for loyalty, but... That can't be your sole reason. Yeah. I just remember, though, that red lipstick, that is one of the pieces that stuck with me yes. so much in this story. Yes. You could have, like, left it out. Who is the evil? Been like, that guy right there. Yeah. Because, whoa. It's like something Norman Bates would make his significant other do. Right. So, Alice is very modest to say the least and this is going to kind of come up later because sometimes in her interviews some of her the wording that she chose I was like kind of like turn my head like a like a puppy like (laughs) but whenever I take myself out of it and I think about it through her point of view I'm like okay I can see why she thinks of things that way because of her modesty and this next part of the story kind of sets the tone for that so another red flag for her was that one day she gets in the car and he's like, I got a surprise. And she's like, thinking, okay, okay, what what are we about to do? You know, he's like, it's a big surprise. Like it's almost magical kind of thing. And she's like, okay, what do we, what do we do? You know, what are we doing? You know? And when they get there, he took her to a strip club. Okay. I thought I was thinking Disney world. So nope. mm -mm. Well, I, how like the show kind of, led up to that I thought he was going to propose like I didn't know like I don't think they were married at this point and like I was like oh my god he's about to take her somewhere and propose but no it was a strip club and she was so uncomfortable and she was like during the interview she's like the women were just like gyrating up there like she was (laughs) so like you could just tell just talking about it she was so uncomfortable yeah and she's like, we got to go. And he's like, what are you talking about? We just got here. You know, like, we're not, what? No, we're fine. It's fine. Chill out. You know, and she's so uncomfortable and wants to leave. And it's like, why did he think that that is the surprise that she wanted? Right. I wonder how that made her feel, too. Because we'll talk a little bit later how she says she doesn't think that she would have ever been able to satisfy him sexually. Because... One time he brought out handcuffs and he was like, can I try these on you? And she was like, absolutely not. You know, she's just like appalled by Mm -hmm. it. She's like, he just wanted to try things and take me out of my sexual comfort zone in a way that she wasn't comfortable with. So it's one thing to have, like to spice things up in the bedroom and to have your kinks and all of that when you and your partner are on the same page. 
but they weren't on the same page. They weren't right. even in the same fucking book. Right. And he was really into porn, too. And one of the things that she said that I was like, huh? Was because she was talking about how a lot of men were back then. And I was like, mm-hmm. a lot of men and women are. Yeah. And that's okay. But again, it's the time and just differences in the way people are raised yeah. and just all the things. So one time he had her come watch some porn with him. And she didn't really go into what it was on. But basically, she said that the the woman was screaming. It sounded like just from her description, like with the screaming, it may have been some sort of like rape role play i'm I'm not really sure but she again was like appalled at how can you watch this like i won't know part of this like i'm out like i don't even want to watch this so i wonder after you know all these different things kind of come together how did that make her feel as a partner to say okay i'm literally never going to satisfy him i don't know that just broke my heart for her yeah He would also give her clothes to wear. Like, he would gift her clothes. And sometimes he would gift her more risque clothing, like thigh-high boots. And she would be like, I'm not wearing that. This is what a sex worker would wear, and I'm not wearing that. You know? Yeah. And, again, it made her very uncomfortable. And it's what he wants her in. Mm -hmm. And it's just these kind of little things for her. Yeah. That are just kind of piling on with his sexual desires. Nothing so far that's been deviant. Right. Now, wear the lipstick all the time. That's weird. But watching porn, you know, going to a strip club, wanting to use handcuffs in the bedroom. Nothing that's like deviant behavior. Yeah. But it's not what she signed up for. Right. And it's not who she thought she was with. Right. Well, things kind of started turning with his relationship with his daughter, Crystal, as well. Not sexually. Oh, I see your face. Not sexually. Oh, gosh. But he started becoming very angry and abusive towards Crystal. Bless it. Over nothing. Like, the first day that he hit her, she had accidentally used the wrong hand towel. And it made him so mad. He punched her in the face like knocked her on the ground like cut her lip i mean beat her because she accidentally used the wrong hand towel holy shit and and berated her like you're gross don't ever do that again you're worthless you know all the things and over nothing and it was like this switch kind of flipped and it was like wait who is this what and then one day when alice was at work she called home, and the details on this was kind of fuzzy, but I don't know if maybe the phone got knocked off the receiver while it was ringing or what, but she heard something in the background, a woman's voice, and so she's like, what the fuck? So she went home, and when she gets home, she didn't see anybody around, and so she goes to the bedroom, and the master bedroom door was locked. and oh, so she, shit. Yeah, so she's like, knock 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 like let me the fuck in what's going on you know and william opens the door but like doesn't like open it Uh open it well of course she finds that there's a sex worker in her bed wow 
And so she just felt so, again, I'm never going to please him. And it was kind of after that that their sex life just kind of ended. Yeah. And, you know, she was like, I think he was okay with it. I don't think he really wanted to have sex with me either. You know, he wanted to find it elsewhere. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she was like, I just did, and her words, kind of what a mother and a wife would do around the house, which I don't agree with. I think it should be shared responsibilities. But in her world, that's what the responsibilities are. So she kind of did her thing and took care of Crystal. That is one of my biggest fears is that my husband, if I'm ever so lucky. (laughs) uh, If they are ever so lucky. I was going to say, actually, it's them, but you know. That they would cheat on me, but I wouldn't know it. Mm-hmm. And then I get some STD or something that you can't get rid of. And because they're my husband, why would I not trust them? Right. Which is probably why I will never get married because I'm paranoid Patty over here. Yes, but paranoid Patty Jr. over here. And it really is different. I mean... Yeah, there's shit you got to work through. Yeah. I mean, you don't just be like, oh, I love this person. I trust everything. It's not like that. Yeah. But if they've literally given you no reason to ever believe that they would have an affair, you know, and they're open with their phone and they're, you know, I mean, there's no indication that they're having an affair. Like, you have to trust them. I think I would still get an STD check. Well, that's okay. But, like, that's me not trusting them. Well, back to Crystal for a second. So, Crystal had this doll that Alice had gotten her. It was her favorite doll. Like, it was like her comfort blanket, this doll. And one day while she was asleep, William hung it up in a noose and, like, waited for Crystal to wake up so he could, like, watch her find it. What in the world? Yeah, and then was like, her doll's her doll's name was Molly. And he was like, Molly's dead. Your doll's dead. Wow. It was just a way to torture her. Mm-hmm. He was so hard on Crystal. And so it kind of came out later that maybe his life at home wasn't so idyllic. And that there may actually have been some abuse kind of like maybe what he was doing to crystal that he grew up receiving damn i don't know though i can't confirm or deny but i found some articles that talked about it but i also found some articles that talked about how he grew up with like this idyllic childhood with like this great perfect nuclear family that which that doesn't mean there wasn't abuse but mm-hmm. that it was a really great childhood so i found both i don't know then one day he comes home and he has a gun and he tells alice that he had gotten robbed and that from now on they're going to keep a gun in the house and that's the end of it and from that point on he would in the evenings like sun goes down he would just go disappear for hours and he would always take the gun with him and no matter what time of the year he would wear a hat and a jacket okay very sus right he was picking up sex workers 100 percent. 
There was also a time where he was actually arrested for solicitation. And the gun that he had on him, like, was unregistered and all this shit. And so Alice had to go pick him up from the police station, like, middle of the night. Oh, my gosh. She gets there, and the police are like, you want to know why he's here? And she said that the way they said it, it was almost like a joke. And so she was like, no. Because, like, they were going to laugh at her, yeah. you know? And so she said no. But then when she was asking him, like, where's your car? His car was on a street that was this known area for sex workers. And so she was like, why is your car here? And there was a time before where he had like introduced her to some sex workers. And she's like, wait, so you just like hang out? Like you're, you're just friends, you know? Which that kind of bothered me a little bit. The true crime podcaster in me is like, everybody's a human. Right. And it doesn't matter that they're a sex worker. They're fucking humans. Like, yeah. even though they're sex workers, they're still humans. Let's be kind. Yeah. But then if Colby was like friends with a bunch of sex workers, I would be like, um... Why are you fucking friends with a bunch of sex workers? So I can see both sides of yeah. that, you know. Well, and he has been caught, right? Before, right? So, so absolutely. But again, I see both sides of it because part of me, when she said that, of so you're just friends with, like, well, she, you know, didn't say sex workers, but so you're just friends with them, and I was like, oh. but then I only again, the girlfriend side of me is like, I mean, I'd be fucking pissed too, right? Right. But then the love everybody side of me is they're fucking humans. You know, it yeah. doesn't matter what they do for a living. Sex workers are humans as well. Cray cray possessive me is like, are they new female friends? Because uh, I do not believe guys and girls can just be friends. It's like if they've been grandfathered in and they were friends with you before, you have history and stuff. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Like, I'm not going to be like, you can't be friends with any female, but like, how y'all meet? What's going on? Yeah. Why did you, you know what I mean? Like I talk to everyone, but I'm not giving my number. I'm not, but you know what I mean? Right. So how'd y'all become friends? What's going on? Right. It's, it's not a coworker. Right. <laughs> then things got a little more strange. Stranger, more strange. Stranger. Stranger. Stranger things. Stranger. One day, Alice is at work, and she gets a page, yes, a page, from Crystal that's like 911. And she calls Crystal back, and Crystal's like, first of all, Dad would not let me go to school today. He's being really fucking weird. What? Yeah. She was like, he's being so weird. He would not let me go to school today. Also, he was like walking around in a ski mask. What? And that's basically what Alice said. Well, also, I just pictured that he was nude in a ski mask. No, he had clothes on, but he had a ski mask on. Okay, that makes it better. So Alice is like, "Uh, okay, Uh, keep me posted kind of thing. No, I'd be like, "Uh, skirt, hold on, got to go. Well, but he had kind of turned on Alice, too, a little bit, like with the abuse and all. And so they're walking on on pins and needles in this house. I mean, it's not just like, give your father the phone, I'm going to handle this. No, because he's beaten Alice at this point, too, for not having dinner ready or, you know, know, the abuse is there. And so... I hate him. Yeah, so they're they're walking on pins and needles in this house. Well, then Alice gets another 911 page from Crystal. And Crystal says, Mom, there are cops everywhere. Apparently, 
the neighbor was like tied to a chair <laughs> and like leapt out of the window because she was being assaulted and the person who was doing it fled. Oh my. And so the police were like canvassing, trying to find out who the man was in a ski mask. Oh my gosh. So Alice comes home and she's like trying to ask William about it. And he's like shut down, like not telling her anything. Like she's like, so did anything happen today? And he's like, no. You know, <laughs> she's like, were the police here? And he's like, no. Literally our next door neighbor was being raped and assaulted, leapt from her window and the guy in the ski mask ran, and you're fucking schlepping around the house in a ski mask. And she's right. like, why are you wearing a ski mask? And he's like, oh, I was um, doing some yard work, and I didn't want the dust in my face. <laughs> that doesn't work. That's not how this works. The That's eye, not how any of this works. You're missing the most important part. <laughs> Did you have goggles on too, sir? You're missing the most important part. Oh, God. <laughs> Um, we know he does not do yard work then, because, uh, <laughs> wow. Also, sir, um, if you flee the scene with a ski mask, don't keep wearing it around. I mean, and don't just be like, let me just, uh, into my house. <laughs> and not let your daughter go to school. Yeah, why did you keep her home from school that day if that's what you were going to do? Like, yeah. was he trying to create an alibi question mark maybe but um i don't know well his story i think changed a couple of times to alice but the police did ask them some questions like hey did you see anything but he wasn't like a person of interest yeah so now we've got him disappearing sometimes for a whole weekend for sure every evening And the violence towards Crystal and now Alice had just come to a peak. And there was this one moment where William was just in a rage. And Alice was like, it just felt different. It was like he was gone in his eyes. It was like he was a different person. Even his voice was different. And she just knew it was like, now or never, it is time to go. And so she and Crystal left. She filed for divorce and they started a new life together. So flash forward a few years, Crystal is now 16 and William had a girlfriend and had a son with this new girlfriend. And so Crystal was like, okay, he's clearly making it work with this girl. He's got a new kid. Like, let me just go try to live with him and see if we can fix what's broken. Like, let me just see if he's changed some because, you know, if he's got this new kid, like, he seems to be very loving to this kid, this new son. Like, let me just just see if he's changed. He's her father. She wants to give him another chance. Crystal was there, I think, two weeks before the violence started again. And she was like, I am fucking out. Bye. And so she went back to live with her mom. So in 1994, this woman had just gotten in a fight with her husband and 
left the house to go walk down the street and cool off. While she was walking, she felt someone grab her and pull her into a van. And the person that grabbed her was William Choice. Oh my gosh. He took her to his house and he told her that he was house sitting for somebody. But really, he took her to his own house where he brutally raped her, held a gun to her head, and told her that he was going to kill her. Oh my gosh. The woman kept telling William that her husband is already looking for her and that he's probably already called the police. And she said, for some reason, he let her go. What? He just like drove her back to where he picked her up. Oh my gosh. So. I mean, I'm very happy, but. Right. um, What? Exactly. So she went to police and was like, this guy like kidnapped me, took me to his house and raped me. And they were like, okay, who? So she took the police to the house and was like, this is the house. So police go to talk to William Choice, and he's like, "Um, yeah, we had sex, but it was consensual. Ugh. And they decide that there was not enough evidence to prove that it wasn't consensual, and they didn't prosecute. A rape kit? But they said that there wasn't enough to prove that it wasn't consensual. But it doesn't matter. Like, if they have, did they do a rape kit? Because if they didn't... That could have shown vaginal tearing and stuff. And yeah. that that could be non-consensual. Yeah. It, that can be consensual. I get that. Yeah. But. 1994. Right. And this woman is saying he raped her. Now, William Choice is black. So most perpetrators attack in their same race and ethnicity. So if she was black too. I can see why they would be like, oh, we can't prove it's not consensual in 1994. Hell, I can mm. see it happening now. But yeah. you see what I'm saying? You see yeah. where I'm going with that? So after that happened, he like picked up and moved. He was like, I'm getting the fuck out of Dodge. I barely missed that bullet. Like, we moving. Right. I mean, he's already been caught in a ski mask, but nothing weird there. Gosh, I wish if like later, I know. You couldn't do this because he was a very violent person. But, like, if he said, I'm going outside to work or whatever, just be like, oh, you forgot your ski mask. Right. In 2001, a woman comes forward to say that she was raped by William Choice. And it's interesting because she was like, hey, cop, I was, like, raped. And they're like, by who? And he, like, walks by and she's like, uh, him. And they're like, what? Oh, him? Okay, and like arrest him. Oh my gosh. Well, then a second woman comes forward and she's like, hey, actually, he raped me as well. So from these two rapes, he gets put in jail for 11 years. I wonder what was different about the other two. Maybe because she took them back there and he was able to state a case before, you know, like, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. I don't know either. That makes me so mad. You know, she remembered where he took her and everything, you know, and, oh, but at least he got 11 years for those two people. Well, while he was in prison for that, 
detectives start looking into some cold cases that, well, obviously, cold cases hadn't been solved. That's when they get a hit on William's DNA. Oh, shit. Because now that he's in prison for these rapes that he's in prison for for these 11 years, his DNA's in the system now because it's a violent offense, rape, blah, blah, blah. And literally while he's in prison for this is when they start this cold case unit and start running all this DNA. So through DNA and ballistic evidence, they're able to link William Choice to what they believe was his first murder in 1988. In 1988? Yes. And when Alice finds out about it, she says to the police, did that happen like in the spring in like around Easter? And they're like, yeah, we think so. Wow. And she says, because he went missing for a whole weekend and I had no idea where he was. And when he came back, he was different. So his first victim was Victoria Bell. She was a sex worker and he picked her up in Oakland. He took her to a secluded area, bound her hands and feet together, shot her in the head, I believe, and then dumped her body in like a sexually suggestive pose. His next victims weren't until after he moved from, remember whenever the lady said that he raped her and then they said it was consensual and then he moved and got the fuck out of Dodge? It was after that. He picked up Gwendolyn Lee, who was also a sex worker, raped her, shot her, and then again, just as a way to humiliate his victims, he would tie their hands and feet up and then position them so that their like their butts were in the air. And then his last known victim is Lawanda Beck, who was a sex worker, and her body was also found naked and she had been shot in the head as well. They found DNA on Gwendolyn Lee's body and Lawanda Beck's body. And then also from ballistics, from the gunshots, he they were able to link the murders together as well. So it went to trial, but in 2008, he was sentenced to death. One of the articles I read was talking about how the average length of stay for inmates on death row is 17 years in California, and that more inmates die by suicide and natural causes than executions because of the appellate process. But, and I don't, I can't even remember what year this article that I found this in was written, but it was talking about how all the executions were at a stay at that point because they were taking it like up to the Supreme Court saying that it was cruel and unusual punishment. So he may not even, like he just sits there on death row right now. They ended up, though, the lady that he raped and that they said, oh, we can't prove consent. He ended up getting sentenced to 81 years to life for kidnapping and raping her. Thank goodness that she got some justice, too. The thing is, is that so whenever we were like transitioning from your case to my case and I was like, well, I don't know, because I think that there are so many more rapes. Like it's innumerable. Yeah. Because... He literally went out every single night. 
yeah. with a gun. So there's no telling how many more victims there are of murder or at the bare minimum rape. I mean, there's literally no telling. And so he seems like there's, okay, let's say three, maybe four rapes and three murders, but there has to be more. Yeah. Like there's, there's no way that he went from 1988 to what, 1994, 1997, something like that. Yeah. In between the murders. Right. There's literally, I mean, I just don't buy it. Right. And then had two murders, like boom, boom. Yeah. So we're missing something. Yeah. Do I think he's like this huge, like prolific serial killer? I don't know. But, I mean, he has potential to have been, like, Golden State Killer-level rapist, potentially. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Because think about how many years. Yeah, and they had stopped having sex, so you know he was getting it somewhere else, and he wasn't asking for it. And... Even when they were having sex, he was getting Oh, other for places. sure. Mm-hmm. But that's what I'm saying. Like, he was doing that before while they were having sex. Mm-hmm. And then when he iced her out. Yeah, you know he was getting it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, and he's not the asking kind, like you said. Yeah. So, I mean, again, he's going out every single night. How much money do you have to make if he was really paying A sex worker every single night. Right. That's a lot of fucking money. Yes. That makes me so mad that people target sex workers and anything. They are doing what they can. They are doing their job. They're on a job. And it should not, I don't know. (sighs) It's literally the world's oldest profession. I mean, like, it really is. It literally should be legalized. Oh, I 100% agree. So it could be safer. I mean, it's no different than porn. It literally is no different than porn. People are paid to have sex on a set. Why can you not pay to have sex yourself? Yes. Like, how is that different? Like, lit- like we can pay someone to have actual intercourse so that we can film it, so that we can sell that. But I can't pay someone... To fuck me. That don't make no sense. Right. And we could cut out so much crime. Yes. So much, like, human trafficking. The abuse. The abuse, the drugs, the this, the that. You know, I mean, healthcare costs. I mean, all of that. And, I mean, the fucking tax money alone. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that Alice and Crystal are alive. Oh, yeah. You said Alice and interviews and stuff. So she's alive, but Crystal. And then when you said that she went back to live with them, I was like, this is where she dies. No, she's still alive, and she does do some of the interviews as well. Awesome. And when he was in prison, like before all of that came out about the murders, he did actually apologize for how he treated Crystal. Well, y'all let us know what y'all think about the McCormick Farm and that duo. Right. You know what? That's funny, though, that both of our stories, they could be... Prolific? Yeah. Or, like, just really bad people. Yeah. Well, and I mean, again, we know for sure he killed three people. Right. And And we know for sure he raped four people. Right. And yes, I am counting the ski mask story as a for sure. Yeah. 
Same with the McCormicks. There were four people dead we know of. Yeah. But he's saying, no, there was more. I just can't remember yeah. exactly where they were. I don't know. And I just feel like there has to be more with William Choice. There has yeah. to be. And he ain't talking. Like, he got that convict code. He's not saying shit. Well, that's his choice, and he's sticking with it. Okay. We got to go, y'all. We got to hang up this phone call. Thank y'all so much for supporting us. Don't forget to subscribe and review and all the things. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.